Welcome to Downton. Hello there. Emma speaking. Welcome to Shall We Go Through, the Downton Abbey fan podcast. What? 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 Hi, guys. I hope you're all doing well. I'm really happy today because I'm not going to say that it's too hot out there because it has been raining for the past couple of days and the temperatures have cooled down. So I'm quite happy about it. <laughs> and I try to stay happy because this is the last episode we have before the really, really sad ones and angsty ones. Well, this one is quite angsty a bit, but you know, I mean, if you watch the show, you know, so I just don't want to think about that now. Today, we're here to talk about episode four of season three of Downton Abbey that I called the one where the Bransons are back. And without further ado, let's just start, shall we? Like my previous episodes, I wanted to start with Anna and Bates again. And I love their storyline in this episode. I think it's really sweet and a bit sad, but it's like all's where that ends well. So it's quite sweet. At the beginning of the episode, all the servants are in the servants' hall and Carson gives them their mail, but there's nothing for Anna. And apparently it's not the first time because Carson says, once again, like there's nothing for you once again. And you see her face, like she doesn't understand. And we don't understand because usually Bates and Anna, they send each other's letters all the time and she has nothing. And then in prison, Bates, well, there's nothing for him neither. And you see his face, literally he has the same face as Anna. He's like, but why? Because usually he has letters from her and they send letters to each other. So I like this parallel at the beginning because neither of them receives letters from the, from the other, but neither of them knows why. And when Anna is dressing Mary, Matthew asked her, how's Bates doing? And well, she doesn't know because she hasn't had news from him for a while. Apparently, they've stopped his visitors and she doesn't know why and she hasn't received a letter. So, um, yeah, that's weird. Even Matthew sees his face like, oh, but why? Like, even he found it weird, we find it weird, something is not right in this. And Anna, she's very downcast, obviously. You know, she says she has a lot on her mind and I feel very sad for her. And then... You know, she's sad and Mrs. Jules, she talks to her, but then she realized that Anna is sad. So she wants to know why it's happening. And Anna says well, that she hasn't received a letter from Mr. Bates in weeks. And she thinks that maybe he stopped writing to her so that she will get on with her life. You know, because he told her, I want you to live life. And so maybe he thinks if he stops writing to me, then I would just forget him, which is completely untrue. And Mrs. Jules, well, she comforts her. She says, well, I'm sure there must be an explanation. I don't know why it is, but I'm sure there must be an explanation for why he hasn't written to you. It's not even just the letters that she can't even visit him. So something must have happened. And well, in prison, one prisoner, the same one who warned Bates that his cellmate wanted to set him up, told him that apparently so Craig, Bates' cellmate, and Mr. Durant, the guard who works with Craig, they are angry with Bates because, you know, they wanted to set him up, didn't work, all that. And that man tells Bates that he has been reported for violence, so he's now a dangerous prisoner. And that's why Anna, she couldn't come visit anymore. That's why he stopped receiving letters from her. And you see on his face, Bates, he's so relieved because he thought, he said, well, thank God, I thought she has given up on me, but she didn't. So he's so relieved, like, okay, I'm a dangerous prisoner, but who cares? My wife, 
has not given up on me. I really love this scene because this is actually quite bad news, you know, like your dangerous prisoner. And he's smiling like, oh my god, I'm so happy. And so then with this other prisoner, they work together to this time set Craig up, you know. And so Bates says he wants to do something tonight. And when the guards come to Bates' cell, they find drug in Craig's bed. And Craig says to Bates that he would be sorry. So we know that doesn't sound good. You know, he will want to get his revenge. But thanks to that, apparently now Bates is in favor again. Because when he's alone in his cell, there's a guard that comes to give him his letters. So he has really quite a big packet of letters. And he's so happy. He's really so happy because, you know, like I said, he thought Anna has given up on him, which it isn't. And he's so happy that he cries and he starts reading the letters. And Anna, back at Downton, she also receives a packet of letters, all the letters from Mr. Bates. And she's so happy, so relieved. And it's just like, what all these letters at once? Like, what happened? And she's like, I don't care. I got my letters. This is the only thing that matters. And the episode ends on this beautiful sequence where you have a parallel between Bates reading Anna's letters in his cell and Anna reading Bates's letters in her room and I love this little sequence it's so sweet so adorable and so emotional like oh actually just for that scene and they relieved like Bates's face when he realizes that no Anna hasn't given up on him and when they receive the letters I just just for that, their reactions, I just love their storyline in this episode because I think it's so, so sweet. Like, I love it. Now, let's talk about Ethel. Yeah, she's still here. Because, you know, you remember Isabel and her new occupation at the center where she helps women rebuilding their lives and all that. Ethel, she kept coming, wanting to say something, and she always left. And Isabel, she came to see Mrs. Hughes to ask her if she had an address for Ethel. And so in this episode, Isabel, she comes to see Mrs. Hughes because she has a letter for her from Ethel. So she says to Mrs. Hughes that Ethel is a prostitute. And Mrs. Hughes' face, she's like, oh my, that's not a word we hear a lot in this house. Like, yeah. But again, it's like last episode. Isabel, she says that so casually, like, oh yeah, she was a prostitute and all that. <laughs> like, it's nothing. And Isabel, she says she wants to help. So she asks Mrs. Hughes, if there is anything I can do, please tell me. And Mrs. Hughes, she mentions Ethel to Carson at breakfast. She says, well, I had a letter from Ethel. She wants to meet me, but she doesn't want to come at the house because she would be uncomfortable. Mr. Carson's like, but why? <laughs> Mrs. Hughes like, well, you know what? Just, yeah, never mind. It's best if I do not tell you the reason because yeah obviously she would not feel comfortable because of what she is now but so they meet at Crowley House Mrs. Hughes is here Ethel is here Isabel is here and Ethel she she says to Mrs. Hughes that she wants her to write to the Bryants again because she wants them to have Charlie she realized that she can't manage with her son and now that she has taken a bad way it's, it's going to be really difficult for her child's future. But Isabel, she doesn't want her to give up her son. She, oh, she wants to help her, but to help her as a woman, but as a mother too. But Ethel, she says she has made her decision. She even says to Mrs. Crowley that it's nice of her to have her here because, well, she's a prostitute and it's not 
where a lot of people would have accepted her in the house. And you see, because Mrs. Birch is absolutely not nice to Ethel. And it's funny because Isabel, she, I think she doesn't really realize that it's not common what she's doing. She's helping her because she wants to help her. But having a prostitute in the house is not something that everyone does. Even nice people that want to help. Mrs. Bird is not nice because obviously she doesn't want to have someone like her in the house. Because when you're a servant, your reputation is the most important thing that you have. And so if people would know that she was in the same house as a woman like Ethel, well, you know, maybe it would not be good for her reputation. But so then Ethel, she brings Charlie to Crowley House because the Bryans are here. And well, they know what she is. They've had her followed. But at first they want to give her some money. And then Isabel speaks with Ethel. She said, but it's nice for her to give you money. She says, well, but it's not going to be much. Like, I'm ready to give them my son. So my son will have the best life ever. And Isabel says, well, but if, you know, Charlie doesn't go to a famous school or university, I mean, you'll be here because you're his mother. And I like when Ethel says, well, I suppose Mr. Crowley went to a famous school in university. And obviously Isabel doesn't know what to say to that because it's true. So yeah, a mother's love is really important, but Ethel is not wrong by saying, but his chances in life will be grander and better if he goes with his grandparents. And so Ethel, she's serving tea for everybody. And she says that she doesn't want to be friends with them and that she doesn't want to accept the offer because she has another one to offer them. So in the end, she says that she wants to give them her son. So then she says goodbye to her son. You see through every scene that Isabel, she does not agree to what is happening. But Ethel, she has made up her mind. And so then Mr. Brian, he takes Charlie. But before leaving Mrs. Brian, she talks with Ethel and she says, I will write to you. And I know there are some lines that were cut in this scene, which is that I will write to you. And Ethel says, well, but Mr. Brian says, well, never mind. Like, you know, never mind. It's not because he doesn't want me to write to that. We're not. So I just love it because you see Miss Brian, she's so nice. Like, really, you see her. She's so sweet. I think she generally cares about Ethel and she doesn't want her grandson to uh, never know his mother. And so I like the fact she wants to um, write to her. And when Ethel said, I would never see my boy again, she says, well, never is a long time. Like, you know, you might see him one day. We don't know. So then they leave. And even Ethel, she says to Isabel, she says, well, I know you don't approve. And she says, well, what is the point of me saying I, I do not agree what you just did because you just did it. So, you know, I'm not going to twist the knife and say maybe that was not a good idea. But Mrs. Hugh, she thinks it was the best solution for the boy. She even says, you did the hardest thing of all. Like you thought about your child before thinking about you. And so then Ethel, she's leaving. And then Mrs. Hugh, she says to Isabel, she's taken the road to ruin and there's no way back. But through all that, you see Isabel, she's like, it feels like she has an unfinished business. Like, because now she still hasn't managed to help Ethel and she wants to. Like, now it's it's personal, you know, it's not even just helping them for them. It's personal. She wants to help her because she feels like she has failed at the moment. And actually, this whole storyline around Ethel giving the Bryans her son was something that was written first for season two, but then they decided to cut it. And so they put it in season three. I quite like it, this story, and especially with what's going to happen after with Ethel, because obviously, like I said, Isabel, she, now it's personal, like, she wants to help her, so it's not the end, we're going to see her again, bananas, 
But I really love actually the story around Ethel. The most I rewatch the show, the most I like it. I don't know if that makes sense. And I know I say it again, but what I love in this storyline and in the scenes where Mrs. Hughes is here with the Bryants is the fact that Mr. Bryant is played by Kevin McNally, who's Phyllis Logan's husband. So Phyllis Logan is Mrs. Hughes. And I love it because in the scene where they are at Crowley House, at the moment she looks at Mr. Bryant, but like so angrily and like with disgust almost. I think it was really funny if you know that in real life, their husband and wife. But like I said, I already said it, but in case you forgot. Now let's talk about Edith. Edith graduated at the altar last episode. Really, really, really sorry for her. Like poor her, truly. Still not married. <laughs> well, at breakfast, Robert, Matthew and Edith are in the dining room. And Matthew, he asks Edith, why doesn't she have breakfast in bed? And she says, well, because I'm not married. And at first she thought, well, yeah, but since everyone else is, maybe it's, you know, okay for you. She's like, no. So, you know, again, twist the knife, Matthew, to tell her that she is not married. But then they talk about the women's vote. And Edith, she's not really happy because apparently now in America, all women will get the vote. And she says, well, it's more than you do here because at this time in Britain, you had to be over 30 or being a householder. And she says, well, I'm neither, so I don't have the vote. And Matthew says, well, you should maybe write to the Times. And she says, well, maybe I will. And Edith is at the Dower House with Violet. And she, apparently she bought her a bottle of scent. And Violet, she asks Edith, how much do I owe you? Edith says, a guinea. And Violet, her reaction is just priceless. A guinea? For a bottle of scent? Did he have a mask and a gun? Oh, thank you, Violet, for being like always the one that makes you laugh. I mean, she says to Edith, you know, I'm worried about you, you know, because th those things are so horrid. Edith is like, well, I mean, being Jewish at the altar, yes, it is horrid. And so Violet says, well, you must keep busy, you know, to keep your mind off this not nice event. And so, yeah, but what with, you know, there's nothing to do except when they entertain. Actually, even at breakfast, uh, Robert tells Edith to ask Cora if she needs help for the dinner because they're going to have the archbishop is going to come for dinner. But Edith, she's right. You know, she said that she's been a bit bored since the war ended. And so, you know, she's right when she says there's nothing to do except when they entertain. Even when they entertain, it's not like there's that much to do. So she said, what can I do? And Violet said, well, but there must be something that you can put your mind to. Like what? Gardening? Well, no, you can't be as desperate as that. <laughs> then what? Edith, dear, you're a woman with a brain and reasonable ability. Stop whining and find something to do. I love this line from Violet. It's one of my favourite lines of her. I think I say that a lot. And at the end, when I've finished all the episodes, I should do like really my favourite lines. And then I realised I have like a hundred. But I love this line, really. You're a woman with a brain and reasonable ability. But then, at dinner, Edith, she says that she has written to a newspaper. You know, when Matthew said, maybe you should write to the Times, and Edith says, maybe I will. But she has written to a newspaper. And, well, Violet, she is not pleased. She's like, but <laughs> you're a lady. No lady writes to a newspaper. And I like it because in this whole conversation, you really have actually two sides. The one that are with Edith and the one that aren't. And you realize that the sides, it's about the age. Let me explain. We know that Matthew, he's on Edith's side because he's the one that said you should write to the newspaper. Violet, obviously, she thinks it's a terrible idea. 
But then, when Edith tries to defend herself, so but you know, what about Lady Sarah Wilson? You know, like she was a journalist, so why can't I write to a newspaper because I am a lady? And Violet says, well, she's a Churchill, and so it's different. And Mary, she says, well, have we no Churchill blood? And by saying that, Mary, she actually takes Edith's side. You see it on the way she say it, that she's more on Edith's side. But then, surprisingly, Cora, she's not. She says, I think Granny's right. Can somebody write that down? It's good to have strong views, but notoriety is never helpful. Well, I've sent it now. It won't be published. Thank you for the vote of confidence, Papa. Well, obviously, we knew that Robert would be against, you know. But Cora, I think it's quite a surprise because, you know, usually she um, is very supportive of her daughters. But I like when she says Not- notoriety is never helpful because it reminds me of something that Julian said. They hate scandal. They hate to be on the front page about anything. The aristocracy hates notoriety. And so then you really have two sides. You know, it's more like the young ones. I will eat it, and the older ones are against her, in a way. But I just love when Violet is like, oh, can somebody write that down? Like, Cora agrees with me? Can we uh, note the date, you know, something like never happened before? And then, at breakfast, absolutely, absolutely love this scene. Edith is with Matthew, Tom, and Robert in a dining room. Oh my God, this is what happens at breakfast. God in heaven, Earl's daughter speaks out for women's rights. What? In a letter to this newspaper today, Lady Edith Crawley, daughter of the Earl of Grantham, condemns the limitations of the Women's Suffrage Bill and denounces the government's aims to return women to their pre-war existence. You said they wouldn't print it. Well done. That's most impressive. Don't say you support her. Of course I support her. So do you, really, when you've had a chance to think about it. So I should hope, anyway. No. What do you think, Carson? I would rather not say, my lord. Absolutely love this scene. First, because it is a parallel to the first breakfast scene where she says, maybe I will write to a newspaper. And Robert's reaction, Robert's face, everything. Robert's, when he's asked Matthew, don't say you support her. It almost has an expression of disgust in his face. Like, no, no, this is not right. At this moment, he has almost the same reaction as Carson. And I love how Matthew is so supportive of Edith. And even says to Robert, you should support her. I mean, this is great. And Tom, he is too. And I love it, like the young, just, you know, the one that embraced the modern world, really. And Carson, what I like is that Carson being obviously completely appalled by this whole situation, by the idea that Lady Edith has written to a newspaper. I love how then the young ones, they find it funny. You know, that he doesn't like the idea. Because it almost means, oh, if Carson doesn't like the idea, that means you are into the modern world. So this is positive, actually. I really, really, really love this scene. I love Edith's face because she's really proud of herself because her article was published and because she has her two brothers-in-law that are supporting her. And I like it because she's generally quite proud of herself and happy. So it's a change from last episode, who was uh, actually awful. Okay, now, remember, last episode. Well, Edith jitted at the altar, we got it. But Matthew, he accepted Regis Wire's money. And he said to Robert that he wanted to give it to him. And Robert says, no, you will not give me your money. You will invest into Downton. You will invest into the estate. We will be co-owner. We will be joint master. So now Matthew is officially co-owner of Downton. When Mary and Matthew are together, 
she says that he has to pull his weight because now he is co-owner. So he has to be there to do something to say what he thinks. And you see that through him, it's almost like she is a co-owner of Downton. Almost like he represents her, what she always wanted to be. You know, she always wanted to be the heir. I think she always wanted to be the owner of Downton. So it's a way for her to be actually the owner of Downton. I don't know if you know what I mean. But Matthew, he doesn't know really where to stand, but I can't challenge Robert. Like you feel that he doesn't want to contradict him because they have two different point of views that we know. Robert is a bit more traditionalist. He doesn't really like change. And you have Matthew who doesn't want to go back to a pre-war world when on the opposite you have Robert who would love to go back to a pre-war world. So he knows they're going to have different views. And he said, I can't just challenge him. And Mary says, but you need to say something. You need to say that because it's your money. I mean, you need to have a say in, in things. So you need to understand how it works. And she's right, you know. And then Robert and Matthew are together in the dining room after dinner. And Carson is with them. So they talk a bit about this because Catherine doesn't really understand. So if you're a co-owner, that means you're like my boss too or whatever. And Matthew's like, no, it's just the fact that I made an investment. But Robert is still the Earl of Grantham. He's still the big boss. So, you know, nothing like that has changed. And so Carson, he wants to put this staff back up to snuff. And Robert's like, well, I think we can now because we have the money. Says, well, because I need a footman. Mrs. Hughes wants a housemaid. And Mrs. Papon wants a kitchenmaid. But Matthew is like, but really? Like, you know, I thought it would be, I thought we were going to live a simpler life, you know, like you know, he, he's still on his simpler life with less servants, like you don't need to. And Cassie's like, well, you know, I would love to just return to my duties as a butler. But if you think that I should continue to do the duties of a second footman, what I do and, and you know, Matthew obviously doesn't want that. And Robert's like, no, Mr. Corey doesn't mean that, right? So I think we can have new staff and stuff. And there was so, uh, something that Robert says to Matthew that was cut, which I thought was quite good. So uh, I'm going to read it to you. Robert, he says, we're employers, Matthew, providers of job. That is the point of us. For Downton to play its proper role in the area, we must provide jobs. And I love it because you see that this is something that is really important to him. Like he must have been raised with this idea in his mind. You know, we must provide jobs. Like this is one of the roles that Downton has to play. And he said that several times, you know, he said it when he lost the money. He said, you know, the house must be a major employer or it has no point to it. And even in episode two, back then in season one, when Matthew wanted to get rid of Mosley because he said, well, I don't need him. And Robert says, yeah, but it's his job and it's also our duty as being um, Earl and having an estate or that to provide employment. So, you know. But I understand both point of views because you can't go back to pre-war world. That's not possible. And that's what Robert wants. But Matthew, he's too much in the future. Like Matthew, I think he just wants maybe a cook, a butler, a housemaid. That's it. I think that's maybe a lady's maid for Lady Mary. But, you know, but you can't just, you know, you have to have a middle, like a gray area. So it's really difficult for them to get along on that. Because Matthew is much too further in the future and Robert really is a bit too much in the past. So it's, I understand both sides, but it's a bit complicated. And then Mary and Matthew, they are together. And Mary says to him that she has arranged the nursery as a sitting room for them. And you see, Matthew, he expected something else. Because he said, well, Cora said you were to the doctor earlier. And then now they're in the nursery. So actually he thought that she had some news like she was pregnant. And so they were in the nursery to, well, redecorate the nursery for their future child. 
which apparently, well, they're not. And Julien made a comment about this whole arranging the nursery as a sitting room, saying he wanted that for them so that they could have a place just for the two of them instead of being constantly around her parents. You know, in the house, they have a bit of intimacy and a bit of more of a private life, just the two of them. Well, he wanted to do that, but obviously, because I thought we never saw a lot of this sitting room situation because of events that we happened in a future episode of season three, Bananas. But I love how you see how he is a bit disappointed because he thought that where she would be pregnant. You see that she is avoiding even the question. And she said, but you've been to the doctor. Yeah, to find something for my hay fever. Like she knows what he expected, but she doesn't want to talk about it. Like, I don't know. And then Matthew, he's in the library and Mary comes in and he actually tries to understand how managing the estate works. And he said, well, I think I, I'm starting to get it. Like it's difficult, but I think I, yeah, I try to understand a bit. And so then he wants actually to talk about all that with Robert when they're in the dining room. Because Robert says, well, did you have any chance to look at those books? And did you like understand things? And he says, well, yes, I think I do. And he then says things and you know, he really wants to talk about it. And Robert says, well, you sound like Murray. And you see Matthew's face like, oh, really? And obviously Matthew would sound like Murray because Matthew, he's a solicitor. So technically he had the same job as Murray. So he see things differently because apparently Murray has been saying for years, not that they has mismanaged Downton, but in a way they say that there are things that need to be done that they could do it better. And Matthew, she, he re, you see, he really wants to say something to Robert, but Robert, he doesn't let him say anything. At first, he literally, he's the one who asked him, did you understand anything about it? And then when he realized that maybe Matthew wants to talk about it, but a bit more too serious, that he doesn't really want to hear it. I think he doesn't want to hear it that he's been mismanaging Downton. He's like, well, you, we can talk about it another time. But Matthew, he still wants to say something. Then he comes to see Violet for help, because obviously she's almost the last result. Like, you know to whom to turn, you go to Violet. He even says it, he said, you know, a situation has arisen and I'm not quite sure which way to turn. He's like, well, obviously, if you turn to me, that must be really important. And he says, well, Robert, he doesn't want to talk about it. And Mary, she doesn't really want to talk about it either because she doesn't want him to say that his father did a bad job. He said, but you know, everyone says, because at first he didn't want it to be involved in it, just wanted to give his fortune. But then Robert, then Mary says, but you know, you've given it. So now you're co-owner. So you have to say something and to really take part in all this. And I said, well, you know, I think because I've given my money into Downton, he says, I feel a duty to do what I can. Violet says, well, about what? And he says, Downton is being mismanaged, Cousin Violet, and something must be done. The thing is, how do I do it without putting people's noses out of joint? Oh, my dear. Oh, I doubt there is a way to achieve that. I mean, you must do what needs to be done, of course, but oh, I think I can safely say a great many noses will be out of joint. And I like it because Violet, in the end, she, like, you know, she was ready to say, okay, we need to lose Downton, that's the way it is. And now she's like, okay, if you say it's mismanaged, then you have to do whatever it takes to put it right. Because it doesn't, like, it's not good to anybody if it is mismanaged. But she's right when she says that some people will be angry, obviously, Robert the first and Mary too. So, uh, yeah, because she's not like we have to do everything like it was before, like, you know, nothing happened. So that's why she's really smart. And because at the moment when she realized that we need to change something, she says, okay, so let's just change it. 
so in the end it will be better in the long run which people like Robert or even Carson they don't want to hear it and they want to hear change at all even if it's benefit for everybody but obviously you know it is definitely not the end of that this whole situation about downtown being mismanaged is definitely not the end and like Byrd said many noses will be out of joint bananas but like we said they agreed to have new staff because Carson like I said, he asked Robert and Matthew if they can have, you know, this new staff that he's been waiting for a while now. You know, a new footman, a new housemaid, a new kitchen maid. And so at breakfast, they talk about the new staff. Carson, he says to Anna, well, when we finally have a new housemaid, you, you'll be able to be a proper lady's maid. So that's great. Even at the moment, they say, well, I thought you'd be more pleased. And she's like, well, I have a lot on my mind because obviously she was thinking about dates and all that. And they talk about the new footman. And Thomas, he makes a remark. He said, well, you need to find someone good, you know. I don't want this person to then bring a bad reputation to the house, something like that. And Alfred, obviously, he takes it for himself. Is this aimed at me? Like, I'm not good enough. And then we have a scene. I really, really love this scene where Alfred, he asks advices from Mr. Carson. And Mr. Carson is actually teaching him the name of the spoons. I know there were that many different spoons, like really. And the bouillon spoon, I think this is the funniest thing ever. Like you have a soup spoon, but you have a bouillon spoon. Like this is really, this is another life, truly. I love it. I love those type of scenes. I really love it because you realize that really it was another way of living. Because to be honest, I have two spoons at home. You know, I have a teaspoon and a, how do you call it? Like a, well, a soup spoon, I guess. I like, and you realize that Carson, he really likes that Alfred asks for help. And so Thomas, well, he's a bit jealous of that. You know, he said, well, you take a lot of trouble with young Alfred. You know, I feel quite jealous. And I love what Carson says. Well, I don't see why, because he asked for help. You never did. And that has changed how Carson, he sees Alfred. Because at first, for him, Alfred was the nephew of Brian. So first, not the best thing ever. And he was actually imposed to him. He didn't choose him. You know, it's O'Brien that came to see Cora because she had a candidate. And so... Alfred was taken on without Carson saying, yes, he can work here or not. But now that Alfred, he has help because he wants to improve. He wants to get better and learn new stuff to maybe then be no first footman, then maybe be a butler or whatever. He likes that, Carson. People that really want to be good at their job. And then we have a dashing young man who arrives downstairs. We can say that. In the script, it's really written handsome men, so... And he's here to see Mr. Carson. And the interview with Carson, I find really funny. Apparently, he worked for a lady, Anstruther, but she, she left England to go live in France and he didn't want it to go with her. And he said, well, she begged me to come with her, but I didn't want it. And I love Carson's face, like, she begged you. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you know how women can be like, Carson, really, said, well, but not, I suppose, as well as you do. And so when Mary and Matthew are in the library and they talk a bit about him trying to understand how managing the estate works, where she has room for Carson because she wants him to bring some tea. And so Mary, she asked him, oh, and I said you were interviewing Footman, so how did it go? He said, well, I have two candidates in mind. One is like, yeah, but not true. But the ladies downstairs, they want the other one. <laughs> and Matthew, he asked, why is that? I don't know precisely, unless it's because he's more handsome. 
Of course, it's because he's more handsome. Oh, do pick him, Carson, and cheer us all up a bit. Alfred's nice, but he does look like a puppy who's been rescued from a puddle. Well, this new one seems very sure of himself. You can manage that, can't you? I suppose I could, sir. Well, it's settled then. Tell the maids they can buy their valentines. So be it, my lady. But Alfred is very good, you know. He's very willing, even if he is Miss O'Brien's nephew. Clearly nothing worse could be said of any man. <laughs> I love their reaction. Like, it's funny that I didn't know that Alfred was O'Brien's nephew because Cora knows and probably Robert knows. So I love the fact that I didn't know and their reaction when Carson says that Alfred is Miss O'Brien's nephew. And Matthew, where he says, I mean, every time this cracks me up because it reminds me back when there was the seventh ball and Robert told him that he could dance with O'Brien. He was like, oh, God. Okay, nice. Um, great. I'm happy. Oh, God. Love it. So where we have the dashing young man as a new footman and Thomas, he just uh, walks through the corridor and he happens to meet this new footman uh, when he's changing. So he has his shirt open. At first we see his back, then we see his muscled upper body, like we can see he has abs and stuff. But anyway, and it's Thomas. So you're like, okay, you see that when he arrives, you see that he was not, he's not insensible. They just say that. And so he said, so you got the job then? And the footman, he says, yeah, and apparently you were a footman once. So maybe if I want some advice, I can ask you. And obviously Thomas is like, well, yeah. You know, Alfred wants to ask him, he says, no. But, you know. And Brian, she comes past the door and she sees the footman and Thomas. And you see her face like she might have an idea that is coming in her head. Obviously a bad one because it's to Brian, but she might have an idea. And so there's a fight in the kitchen about who is first footman. Because Alfred says, well, it's me because I was there before. And Daisy, she takes Alfred's defense. But Miss Papa was like, well, you know, it's Mr. Carson who decides who's first footman. So now just go and take the food because it's what you're supposed to do. And so at dinner, they introduce our new footman. And he says his name is Jimmy, but Carson says, James, he's James. And well, he's not really pleased about that. And then when he leaves, Mary says, Well done, Carson. That must have cheered up the maids. He looks like a footman in a musical review. Poor Alfred. We mustn't allow him to be completely overshadowed. Quite right, my lady. Hard work and diligence weigh more than beauty in the real world. If only that were true. And then James, he's not happy. He says that he has always been Jimmy. He never was James. With Lady Anstruther, he was always Jimmy. And Carson here arrives, well, I don't care if you're a father Christmas to Lady Anstruther. Here you are, James. You're going to stay James as long as you're at Downton. And Jimmy, what well, do you realize that he has quite a strong character? He says, well, okay. So he's already angry at Carson, who's supposed to be his superior. So that's a good place to start. And he's like, well, you know, he thinks he's so clever. He thinks like the big cheese. And Alfred's like, well, that's because he's the big cheese. Like, you know, technically. O'Brien, she says to Thomas, well, he's nice, you know, this young man, right? And you see the way she says that to Thomas. She really has something in her mind. Something not good, obviously, because it's O'Brien. And she said to Thomas that she will have a revenge about him spreading the rumor that she wanted to leave and all that. So... Not the end. It doesn't sound really good. Bananas. But then the staff, you know, because Daisy, she's still waiting for a kitchen maid to be a proper assistant cook. And at the end of the episode, Alfred, he comes to thank Daisy for being on his side. At that moment, Daisy, she wants to say to him that she likes him. Like she wants to say it. 
at the same moment, Miss Parkmore comes in with a young woman. And so it's Ivy, the new kitchen maid. And I, because when she introduced Ivy to Daisy, she says, and this is Daisy, my assistant cook. And when she say it, she's so proud. And I think she thought that Daisy would be really proud to be called assistant cook. But Daisy, the only thing that she sees is that at that moment, Alfred, he doesn't look at her anymore. He looks at Ivy, where he realized that he likes her. So obviously Daisy, she's upset by that. And she is not really nice to Ivy. And so you realize that <laughs> she will not like her because Alfred kind of likes her. So yeah. Let's have the beginning of new storylines with these two new members of the staff. So it's just the beginning. It's definitely not the end. Bananas. But now, you know, my title says the one where the Bransons are back. So let's talk about the Bransons. Just before dinner, when the Archbishop is here, Robert is talking with him and he says that he is anti-Catholic. I thought it was quite funny to let him say that when just after this shot, we have a shot of someone outside in the rain. Then we have Sybil, who's on the telephone with Edith, who says that she's all right, that no one has stopped her, that she's out of the flat, like whatever. We don't really understand what it is. It is like, what are you talking about? Then we see again a man outside in the rain, in the woods. And then Edith, she comes to where she talks about her conversation with Sybil to Mary and Cora. And they're like, what, what is she talking about? But then it's time for dinner. When dinner starts, someone knocks on the door. It's Tom. Like, so the man that we've been following outside was Tom. So that's why I think it was quite funny for Robert to say that he's anti-Catholic when well, his son-in-law is just coming. Son-in-law that is Catholic, by the way. And so Mary, she comes to see who it is and he, he says that he's alone, but that Sybil will follow. So everything is a bit like weird. Okay, why is he here with no luggage alone? He walked in the middle of the night under the rain. Like, okay, and then why Sybil must follow? Like, he, this is really weird. So she says, you know what? You go get changed. I ask someone to sort out food for you and you have to wait because we have a guest. So we have to wait for him to leave. And so then when they're, a table again when she comes back with Matthew because Matthew he had to come to see what was going on obviously and so when they back around the table she makes an excuse saying it was just you know someone from the village giving away pamphlet you know whatever but she says discreetly to her father that it was Tom and but that Sybil is not with him but apparently she's coming soon but he said that he will explain it when the archbishop is gone Violet, she's next to Mary, so she has overheard, and she says, Something to look forward to. Other men have normal families with sons-in-law who farm or preach or serve their country in the army. Maybe they do, but no family is ever what it seems from the outside. And so, now, I will give you my French words, well, my French words of the day, uh, because of what Robert says, you know, other men have normal families with sons-in-law who farm or preach or serve their country in the army. And so my French words would be son-in-law, and because it works with it, I will give you daughter too, you know, because it's the Bransons. So son-in-law in French is gendre. We do have another word. We say sometimes beau-fils, but usually we use gendre way more often. And so it's written G-E-N-D-R-E. And it's masculine. So it's un gendre. And daughter, it's fille. And well, it's the same word for daughter and girl. Well, you do say that also in English. You say my girl for your daughter. But in French, it's literally, there's only one word for the two. So girl and daughter. It's fille. It's written F-I-L-L-E. And it's feminine. So it's une fille. 
so yeah, it's the episode, no, because Tom is their son-in-law and Sibo is their daughter. So yeah, I thought it was quite fitting. So son-in-law in French, it's gendre and daughter, it's fille. So then Tom is back and the servants, obviously, they talk about him because this is weird. The guy arrives in the middle of the night with no coat, with no car, no luggage. Well, obviously it's weird. And then the family, they're all in the library with Tom and he explains what happened. And so because it's, I think it's really, really, really strong scene, it's quite a long one, which means I don't really know where to cut it because I think the whole scene is really good. So I'm going to give you the whole scene or almost all, like maybe I'm going to cut one or two lines that are not that important. But yeah, let's just give you the whole scene. They turned everyone out of the castle, Lord and Lady Drumgool, their sons and all the servants, and then they set fire to it. What a tragedy. Well, yes and no, that house was hideous. But of course, that is no excuse. No, it is not. But what was your involvement? Who says I was involved? Well, you seem to know a lot about it if you weren't. And why are you running away? And what was Sybil's part in all this? She's not involved, not at all. But they think I was part of it. They think I was one of the instigators. So the police are looking for you? That's why I couldn't go home. I knew if they took me, I wouldn't get a fair hearing. You mean you gave them Sybil while you saved yourself? I don't think they'll hold her. But if they do, then I'm prepared to go back and face the consequences. You damn well better be. You must see the Home Secretary. And tell him what? The police say he was there, he says he wasn't. I didn't say I wasn't there. Why were you? For the fun of seeing private property destroyed. Those places are different for me. I don't look at them and see charm and gracious living. I see something horrible. With the Jungle Castle, I rather agree. Mama, you are not helping. But when I saw them turned out, standing there with their children, all of them in tears watching their home burn, I was sorry. I admit it. I don't want their type to govern Ireland. I want a free state, but I was sorry. Never mind that. What's happened to Sybil? We agreed that I should leave at once and that she'd close the flat and follow. But I got the last boat, so she won't be here before tomorrow. Good God Almighty! You abandon a pregnant woman in a land that's not her own. You leave her to shift for herself while you run for it. You have to go to London, Robert. For Sybil's sake, if not for his, you have to see Mr. Short. I don't have to do anything. I never meant Go to bed. I'll give you my answer in the morning. I know it's a very long scene. I absolutely love it for so many reasons. First, it's a really strong scene. And it's the first time that you see Tom being vulnerable with the family. You saw him being vulnerable with Sybil, but now he's literally vulnerable with the whole family because you realize that he's not proud of what he did at that moment. And so you have different reactions. You have Robert, obviously, who's angry, but like I think he, if he could have punched the guy, he would have done it. Really, like you see, he's tried to control himself, but it's hard. Mary and Matthew are on the same side here. They try to understand him and try to be on, not on his side, but not as angry as Robert to understand, but they also realize that what he did was wrong. Edith and Cora actually realize they are the one that think about Sybil first, especially Cora. She's the first one who asked about Sybil. She's like, what was Sybil's involvement in all this? You get them Sybil to save yourself. And it's Edith who says, well, what's happened to Sybil? We have those different teams. And you have Violet that's here to say something funny because we already said it. In big moments of crisis, she has to come and to say something funny. That's why I love her. That's why we love this show, really, because this is moments of crisis. This really strong scene, a lot of emotions, a lot of things happening, okay? Because what happened? A property that destroyed. Everything that they did to this family is a family like them, okay? So, you know, it's not really nice to have someone like them in the family. Like, what, what will you do next when our house do? And Violet, she, oh God, she has to say something funny. And I love her. And 
I thought it was really quite interesting with something that Julian said. Usually, when you have an enemy or something you really hate, it's best to not know too much about them. Because the problem now with Branson is that being part of the family, having his wife being part of the aristocracy and his in-laws being part of the aristocracy, he knows them too much. And it's not just an enemy. They are people. I don't know how to explain that, but... You know, when you don't know anything about them, it's easier to hate them and to say they're the enemy and yes, we're going to burn the house and to not be affected by all that. But now that he is a bit part of the family, even if he doesn't really know where to stand because it doesn't really fit in, he knows them a bit too much. The astrocracy is not just a system, it's faces, it's people, it's feelings, you know, and all that. So obviously when he saw this family, you know, in tears, watching their home burn, obviously he was sorry because he could identify them with his wife's family so obviously it's harder for him now because he's not just a revolutionary he's a revolutionary well socialist like he says who married into the aristocracy but you see how he feels bad like really you see that he's not proud of what he did and he should not be i mean let's be honest i'm on robert's side you know when he said you abandon a pregnant woman in a land that's not her own and you leave her to shift for her say what you burn for it even if they will agree, you know, like they have made the plans with Sybil. I'm on Robert's side at this moment. Like, what the hell, really? And then when we see Tom crying in his room, I like this scene because I think this scene could have been cut, you know, because it's just a basic scene of him crying. But I like that he put it in because having faced his in-laws, he realized that, yes, what he did was not right. I don't know if you know what I mean. Like, really, like, yeah, and he's worried because but his wife is not with him and we know if she's okay so obviously it's not feeling good right now and again the servants are talking about it and Mosley may- makes a remark he says well obviously she married beneath her you know I think it's quite funny that Mosley he would be on I would say Carson's side because Carson he can't stand Branson but you know it's so bad he said well do you think he's in the run from the police like what we happen like where is Lady Sybil like all that obviously they ask themselves the same questions than the family and Mrs. Hughes and Mr. Carson before going up, he comes to see her and he says that he knew that Branson would bring shame into the family. And at the same moment, Mrs. Hughes, she is showing him what she bought. She bought an electric toaster as a treat for herself. And she even says, well, if it's good, I'm going to suggest it for the upstairs breakfast. And Carson, I love what he says. Is it not enough that we are sheltering a dangerous revolutionary, Mrs. Hughes? Could you not have spared me that? And so the next day, Branson, he's in the library with the family. And uh, so they talk about what Robert would do because the evening before, Courage said that he has to see the Home Secretary. And at first he doesn't want to do it. You know, he's really angry. But then, you know, the night has passed. Maybe his wife has talked to him. And he says that what he's doing, he's doing it for Sybil and not him. He condemned what he done, like he don't agree and whatever. And uh, so he says that if we see the Home Secretary, like he would go to London and he said we not leave until he has seen Mr. Schwartz or the Home Secretary. Where Cora says that it's the right decision, you know, for Sybil, even if it's right for him, because Tom, they have to keep him out of prison. But it's, if he's out of prison, it's the right decision for Sybil, for the family, for everyone. And so Robert said well, that he will leave and so just to warn him if Sybil contact them. And Thomas said, well, she will not, because she will not give them anything to trace her by. Robert says, What a harsh world you live in. We all live in a harsh world, but at least I know I do. I love this line from Branson, because this is true. The word is harsh. And I love it how he says that, because 
they all live in harsh words, but because they're from the aristocracy, the word is a bit less harsh for them. Not saying that they do not have sometimes really bad things happening to them. I mean, Edith, you know, last episode, Daisy, she even says, I never thought I would feel sorry for an Earl's daughter because what happened to her was awful. But they are privileged people. So they do not face the world and do not see them the same way than the others. So I like when Branson says, but at least I know I do. And I love it because when he says that, Robert, you see his face, like he has been a bit taken aback at that moment, you know, because I genuinely believe that what Branson says is true. And so it's a bit, you know, it's like, okay, I didn't expect that. But then Sybil arrives. So we're relieved. Tom is relieved. We can breathe. She's alive. Like she's safe and sound. For now. For now. Um, and then they're all in Sybil's room when, when say, oh, all the girls, obviously, because Robert is still in London. And you realize they're all a bit angry at Tom. Like Cora, she's like, how can you have left her alone? Like, because at first Cora, she was, you know, I'm not saying she was really happy of Branson, but she tried to welcome him to the family. But she's like, you left my baby alone. Like, you want me like to punch you in the face? Like, what? like you see how she is. She's like, what the hell? And, you know, she says, no, that's not how it was. We knew if this would happen. We knew what we were supposed to do. And then Christ says, well, they should not travel until the baby is born because it's not safe. But apparently Tommy wants the baby to be born in Dublin. And Mary's like, well, are you kidding me? We right now, you would still hold on to that when, you know, we're in the middle of a situation. And she's angry. She said, well, how could you have done that? Because they are like us, you know. So obviously I, I can understand them because the family of whom they run the house is like them so obviously they identify to them so maybe it could have been us you know and having our home destroyed and then they receive a telegram from robert says that he has seen mr short and that neither of them so neither tom or sybil has to live down to and then we see that thomas is back so that means that robert is back and mostly he tries to have some information about what happened and obviously thomas doesn't want to give him any because why well, doesn't care about mostly why well, he only cares about mostly when he wanted to spread the rumors about Mr. Brand leaving, but now he doesn't care anymore. And the family is again in the library. Violet is here and Sybil is here now. And Robert says that Tom can never go back to Ireland. Sybil doesn't say, well, it's not fair. You know, he says he was there. He admitted. So why, why do they do that? But apparently, they have more proof than what Tom said. Because apparently, he has attending Dublin meetings where they plan the whole attack. You can say it like that. And Sybil, she's disappointed at that moment because she didn't know. And they're all a bit like, okay, so first, first, the guy, he was there. So that is something. And then he actually attend the meetings where they planned the whole thing. So you're like, oh, nice. And Tom, as his defense, well, I was, I was always against any personal violence. And Violet, she says, oh, so at least we can sleep in our beds. But, you know, obviously Tom is like, well, it's not possible. I can't never go back to it. Like, no. And Robert Starr apparently would be arrested the moment he arrives in the country. So that's a bit harsh. Um, but he managed to have keep Tom out of prison and Tom and Sybil out of trouble. So can someone say thank you? Actually, there were lines that were cut where Cora says, well, is anyone going to say thank you to your father? <laughs> so that's to Sybil, like, uh, please, the guy just literally saved you. But no, I was quite sad that this was cut because I was such a Cora thing to say, like, uh, please, can someone say thank you? <laughs> And then so the boys are in the dining room and where well, Tommy's like, well, I can't be out of Ireland. It's not possible. And Matthew's often said, well, you lived out of Ireland once. You can do it again, surely. But then Tommy says to Robert that he's grateful, that he knows that what he did for him and he's grateful. And I think a part of him is a bit angry because he 
owes something to Robert. Like he owes him now because thanks to him, he's out of prison. He's out of trouble even. So I think he's a bit troubled by that because he owes him. And it's not just that he owes his father-in-law. He owes an aristocrat. And I think he's not really pleased at the idea. And so Matthew said, well, I'm sure he's grateful. And Robert says, no, he's not. He says it to keep the peace with Sybil. But then I only rescued him for Sybil's sake, so I suppose we're even. A scene that I think is really, really, really funny. In the servants' quarters, we see smoke coming out of Mrs. Hughes' sitting room. Carson is like, oh my God, there's a fire. There's a fire. So he takes a bucket of sand. I think it's sand. Yeah, well, whatever. And he comes into Mrs. Hughes' sitting room. But actually, it was Mrs. Hughes who was just trying to make herself some toast. And she burnt the firsts because she really didn't know how it was working. But now she says, well, now I know how it works. So, you know, it's great, actually. Then Carson says, I was worried that Mr. Branson might take it into his head to burn the house down, but I didn't think that you would. No, you should never take anything for granted, Mr. Carson. I really, they're so funny, the children, I love them. <laughs> so funny. Love this scene. Then Sybil and Tom are in her bedroom. She's a bit cross with him because he said, well, you never told me you went to those meetings. And he says, well, I never told you I didn't. Like this, I hate those kind of answers. Like you want, at that moment, you're like, oh, I want to punch the guy. And he says, well, you know what? Now you must let the baby be born here. You know, and she's determined. So, you know, you have to because we need peace and safety and Downton can offer us both. And you see, he's not really pleased by the idea, but he also sees that she's determined. You know, like, this is not just for us, it's for our child, so we stay here. And so it almost feels like he has nothing else to say. And I can say he has nothing else to say because he can't go back to Ireland, so where does he want to go? Like, this is the best place to be because then Sybil would be with her family, you know, and the baby would be here soon, so I think it's best. And you see that she is determined, so he has nothing to say. So, to end this storyline and this episode, I will give you my music of the day. And this music is not just for this episode. It's for the relationship between Sybil and Branson. I think this song represents in a good way their relationship. Oh, and let me warn you, it's Taylor Swift. So that was Treasurous, Terror's version by Taylor Swift. I think it's a good depiction of their relationship. And so, you know, this slope is treacherous, but I like it. It's a bit or like, you know, this is not going to be easy. You know, this might be not the best way to do it, not the best way to go, not the best idea, but you want to go. And I like especially the nothing safe is worth the drive. And it makes me think when Sybil said to him, 
when he says, well, no, you wouldn't mind burning your bridges and say, well, fetch me the matches. You know, like she's ready for a new adventure. And I think this song is really about that, the new adventure when you are in love and stuff like that. And in the end, she just wants to stay with him because she loves him and she's ready for all this, well, all these obstacles because there are only obstacles. Because you realize that they're all shocked a bit about what they agreed to if this happened, you know, when say we agreed that if this happened, he would have to go and I would follow him, uh, I would close the flat and follow. So, and they're all like, but what, like for them, it's completely inconceivable that he would leave, they would agree to leave her alone, especially when she's pregnant. But she's like, but we agreed to that. So again, you see that she lives a completely different life than the rest of the family and that she, even when say she lives in a completely different world. So yeah, I thought it was quite nice. And I really wanted to, at a moment, talk a bit about their relationship or, you know, have a song for their relationship. Because, well, if you know, you know. <laughs> I thought this episode would be the best one to say something about their relationship. If you know what will happen in the next one. Bananas. So, yeah, that's it for this episode. I hope you liked it. Again, if you want to send me a message, talk to me about whatever you want. Well, send me a message wherever you want. <laughs> I know that in some parts of the world, people have already gone back to school. So I hope it was all right. If you just went back to school and you want to chat, just tell me how it was, if everything is fine. And yeah, I'm sure you will have a great year. I wish you good luck for this new year. Here in France, the, the first day of school, it's the first of September. Well, not for everyone, but you know, it's general. It's only in September, so it's not now. But so for those of you who are already back at school, I wish you good luck and only good things for this new year. I'm sure you're great. And yeah, I will see you next Sunday to talk about one of the most heartbreaking episodes of the show. And I even want to say one of the most heartbreaking episodes of television history. In my point of view, for all the shows that I've watched, this is really an episode that breaks my heart into a million pieces. And it's not going to be a pleasant one. To be honest, when I'm talking to you right now, I have not started to work on it. Like I haven't even watched it again because I was not ready, but I will have to. And it's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be really heartbreaking. And I can even say already that I can understand some people do not want to listen to it because, well, it's not going to be, it's not going to be funny. Okay. So yeah, I would understand. I would totally understand, surely. And I wouldn't mind. But if you just want to, you know, being heartbroken with me, then I mean, feel free to listen to it. But yeah, so that would be for next Sunday. And until then, stay safe, take care of yourself, stay hydrated, and don't forget. Vive le France! Um.